welcome to New Life Preaching Podcast, where we stream our sermons from each Lord's Day. In this series, entitled The Household of God, we begin our study of the first epistle of Peter, where he seeks to encourage Christians who are scattered among pagan nations. Join us each Lord's Day so that you don't miss a single sermon. morning everyone. Uh, if you would go ahead and begin turning in your copy of God's Word to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, today we'll be looking through verses 8 through 12, but to give us more context for 8 through 12, I am going to jump back to some previous passages before that uh, here in just a moment. As you're turning there, uh, I just wanted to share something that um, kind of stood out to me just a moment ago. I don't know whose decision it was this morning to, to sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I don't know if it was, was Miss Joyce. It was Miss Joyce. Okay. Uh, but what a timely song for us to sing this morning, obviously knowing that this is the Sunday prior to our celebration of Christ's birth, uh, but also because of the scriptures that we're going to be in today whenever we get to verse 12, uh, which I'll just tell you the conclusion of it. It says, things which angels desire to look into, things which angels desire to look into, so as I've been studying, as I've been meditating on God's Word, I've really been diving into that section and that section uh, with a significant amount of time uh, to understand what this means. And then to read this morning, Hark the Her- or to sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and to read, uh, Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, with angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. What a theme for us to be focusing on today. So hopefully by now you're already to First uh, Peter chapter 1 in your copy of God's Word. Our focus is verses 8 through 12, but I'm going to go back to verse 3 and start there and read through 12 to give us some more context for today. So if you would, in honor of the reading of God's Word, stand up please. Starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being so much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, Whom having not seen you love, Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner in time the Spirit of Christ 
who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather today in your name. God, I pray that today's message be a message that uh, attempts to communicate the glory of your Son, uh, to communicate the hope that we have that is a knowing hope through your Son. God, I pray that uh, through this week our hearts be prepared and our minds uh, be filled with your word and your truth as we uh, anticipate and look forward to celebrating the birth of your Son, Jesus Christ. God, may we not take for granted that we have your infallible word, that we run to it for all understanding, for all wisdom, for all knowledge. And Lord, I pray that we be people of your word and that our emotions be driven by our knowledge of you and that our faith not be driven by our emotions alone. God, we know that every good thing comes from you. So that which we have before us, that is good, we know is from you. We know that everything in our future you hold and that you are supreme over all and we thank you so much for your son Jesus Christ over all. Amen. Come and be seated. So I titled today's sermon, I tried to have a little bit shorter title than some of them that I've had in the past. Title today's sermon, A Testimony of Salvation. A Testimony of Salvation. And one thing that I started doing through COVID, and it's kind of nerdy, that's okay, is I started looking at uh, the 1828 Webster's Dictionary whenever it came to uh, looking into a term. So obviously I know what the word testimony means. Obviously we've all heard of the word testimony before, but as we all know as well, terminology, the definition of terminology may change over time because man changes his understanding of terminology over time. So, between you and I, and anyone else that's hearing this, I would rather go back to the, the 1828 definition uh, of a particular term because the odds are that's a more historically correct way of using that term, okay? So when it comes to the term testimony, I was blown away. I don't know why I was blown away. I've looked through the 1828 several times, but whenever I looked up the word testimony, almost every example of the word testimony was backed up with some kind of scriptural reference, something that had to do with following Christ and the testimony of God's word. Almost every single aspect of that. So I want to begin by reading the 1828 definition of testimony if we're going to talk about a testimony of salvation. And this is what it says. A solemn declaration or affirmation made for the purpose of establishing or proving some fact. Such affirmation in judicial proceedings may be either verbal or written, but it must be conducted under oath. A testimony, however, differs from evidence. Testimony is the declaration of a witness. The evidence is the effect of that declaration on the mind or the degree of light which it might afford. I feel like that's so fitting for what we're talking about today whenever we talk about the testimony 
of salvation. The testimony that we have of who Christ is is saturated in not only this portion of, te- of Scripture, but all through God's Word. What testimonies do we have? What testimonies are illustrated in verses 8 through 12? The testimony of the Old Testament prophets. The testimony of the apostles, the men who walked with Christ. The testimony of the pastors who followed that were carrying the good news of Jesus Christ. The testimony of the angels who look into these matters to know more about this gospel and this revelation that's taking place, although they are not in need of redemption and without sin. And then lastly, the testimony of ourselves and our lives and all those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. We have no lack of testimony of the salvation that is achieved through Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ alone. We also have no lack of evidence that Christ is the only sufficient means of salvation. For example, the the prophets have prophesied. Christ fulfilled over 300 prophecies of the Old Testament, and that's being conservative by saying it's 300. What other evidence do we have? We have the evidence that even those who do not follow Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior cannot deny factually that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a true, literal, historic event that took place. You cannot deny the evidence of such. What other evidence do we have? Every follower of Jesus Christ has the evidence of the testimony of salvation because they know the working of the Holy Spirit in their own lives. I know my faith in Christ to be true because I know who I am apart from Christ. The evidence is clear to me. And the evidence can be seen by the unbeliever in your life, correct? They can see the change. They can see the difference. But if it's never illuminated to the onlooker, they may believe that it's merely a change of behavior. Only the follower of Jesus Christ can fully understand that the evidence is a lived evidence and that the Holy Spirit is the only means by which the change took place. With that being said, I want to focus just for a minute about the context of where we are and who it is that Peter is writing to here in 1 Peter. So we see in verse 1 that it's to the pilgrims who have been dispersed all throughout what today would be modern-day Turkey. Okay, But why are they dispersed? What's taking place? Well, as a history teacher, I absolutely love this part of studying Scripture. I like understanding why particular people were written to, why they were written to in the way that they were written to, what were they actually going through whenever they received this message. Because, for example, and I use this example all the time in my history classes, if I was to find a love letter from, I don't know, let's say it's uh, between Steve and Jackie, okay, in the Walmart parking lot, and I pick it up, and I read it, and it's obviously a love letter, and it's from Steve to Jackie, I'm going to fill in the gap with whatever I want to think that it means based off of my own disposition, not knowing who Steve and Jackie are to begin with, correct? I'm basically making it up as I go along, rather than if I know who Steve is, and I know that he's married to Jackie, and I know they've been married for 50-some-odd years, wouldn't that letter make a lot more sense to me if I know these two people personally? 
I know who's writing it, and I know who's receiving it, and I know the complexity. I can get a better understanding of what's taking place because I know who's actually involved, and I'm not just an outside-looking-in person in that situation, but I'm actually able to understand because I know these people. I know these people. We can do that in Scripture when we slow down and take the time to understand the context, and that's one thing that I wish I'd been doing years and years ago. But, so the context here. When Peter's writing this, this is after the burning of Rome. Emperor Nero burns Rome in about 64 AD. About 64 year AD. Nero burns Rome. Many people think that he burned Rome because he was so infatuated with building new and building better and doing all of these new things and having new construction well, if you already have the buildings that exist and you want to build new, you've got to get rid of the buildings that exist to try to make people think that you need new. So many people think that Nero burned for that reason. So a lot of the Romans were left homeless and hopeless. Nero didn't think that he was going to receive so much backlash over this, so as a result, he had to find a scapegoat. He must find a scapegoat. And he seemed to find the perfect one. The Christians. This ragtag group of outsiders who were already experiencing persecution to begin with. But why did they make the perfect scapegoat for Nero? Primarily because of their opposition of Roman paganism. If you think in your own life, in our lives, those who oppose Christians the most, or the Christians that are opposed the most, are oftentimes the ones who are not willing to kowtow or capitulate and intermingle with pagan behavior. More often than not, it's the Christian that's outspoken and says that we'll not condone these things that are the ones who are persecuted rather than the ones who sit idly by and never actually proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're not a threat. So you have a lot of different sects of people in the Roman Empire that are not seen as a threat because they're not actually challenging what's taking place in Rome as far as not condoning the practices taking place. So their opposition to this pagan Roman society is not tolerated by the Romans. The persecution of the Christians spreads widely across the empire, reaching even the recipients of the people here in modern-day Turkey. The people here that he's writing to are under the rule of Emperor Trajan and Governor Pliny the Younger. Now, we have plenty of writings from Pliny basically bragging about the persecution that he brings upon the Christians. He was ruthless. Trajan was no better. Under Nero, you guys have probably heard this many times. Maybe you haven't heard this, but I believe that it matters whenever we get to this portion of the text. Nero had men hunt Christians for sport. Our brothers and sisters in Christ from years past were sent to the Roman Colosseum to be fed the lines for entertainment, for public entertainment. The corpses of believers were literally burned to light garden parties at Nero's home. How does the world perceive this? How does the world explain the spread of the gospel in these early days? They explain it by saying, I had a textbook literally write this, 
that Christianity spread throughout modern-day Israel and Syria as a result of unfavorable conditions. I'll say that again. That Christianity spread throughout Israel and Syria and eventually the Roman Empire as a result of unfavorable conditions. Let me make this make sense, at least what they're trying to say. So what a textbook author in 2022 is trying to tell me and convince an audience is that Christianity, the gospel of Jesus Christ, spread throughout the world, spread throughout the Roman Empire as a result of, quote-unquote, unfavorable conditions without explaining what the unfavorable conditions are. The unfavorable conditions are the fact that the Christians were hunted, that they were massacred, that they were killed for sport, that they were killed for entertainment, I believe that that's a lot more clear than saying unfavorable conditions. But think of this. To claim that the spread of Christianity is because of unfavorable conditions, it doesn't really make any sense because these people would have known the persecution that's taking place. When a man comes into the town and he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the odds are that people already know that persecution follows those who are following Christ. You do not follow Christ. You do not follow Him to the point of death simply to follow a crowd. You follow Him to the point of death because you know the transformation that's taken place in you. The people that Peter's writing to are not merely following Christ because it's the new thing to do. They're not following Christ because it's the latest trend. And unfortunately, we live in a time where following Christ is a trend, and it's always, we've always had that, where it becomes a trend. But what do you see? What do you see? What do I see in my students? What do I see in relatives? Those who follow Christ because it's popular on maybe a particular social media platform, maybe a particular clothing brand, or maybe a particular celebrity claims Christ, and then we jump on it and we say, look, they're one of us now, just to find out a month or two later that they didn't have anything to do with us at all. May we not be people who root ourselves in those of popularity and those who have status. It's not going to last. It's not going to last. The people that endured all of the things that they, that they did, that Peter's writing to here, they endured it because they had a love for Jesus Christ. And he's writing this letter to sure up that faith that they have, the salvation So if you're following along in your bulletin today, your first blank there is an unspeakable joy. An unspeakable joy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Speaking of Jesus Christ, whom you have not seen, or whom having not seen him, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The recipients of this letter knew the work of the Holy Spirit and they were filled with an unspeakable joy for the Savior that they had never seen. Now remember context. Think about who's writing this. It's Peter himself, a man who walked alongside Jesus Christ for approximately three years. A man who saw Christ being persecuted, a man who saw Christ beaten, a man who saw Christ crucified. He saw it all. He saw it all. And then in the presence of Christ, Christ says to him, 
do you love me? And of course he says, yes, I do. And then he's told that you will deny me. And he says, I will never deny you. I know you. I've walked with you. I've been with you. I've done life with you. I will never betray you. I will never turn my back on you. And we all know what ends up happening. We all know what ends up taking place. And let's not forget, we know the restoration that takes place and we know what Peter does afterward. We know the forgiveness that was shown. We know the grace that was given. And we know the abundance of love and admiration that he had for the Lord following that in the ministry of the gospel thereafter. An example being this letter itself. He knows a love of Jesus Christ because he has been with him and he understands the working of the Holy Spirit in these people who have not seen Christ but yet love him. Understand that you and I, we do not have to see him to love him. And understand that even those who would see Christ, it does not mean that they will bend the knee to him. Just because someone reads God's word, it does not mean that they are saved. We cannot think our way to salvation. We cannot reason our way to salvation. No one in the history of mankind has logic their way to a means of salvation. There is yet but one way. There is one way, and it's through the blood-bought sacrifice of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. He knows that. And that's why to the unbelieving world, it doesn't make any sense. You haven't seen him. You don't know him. How do you love him? How are you willing to march to death for someone you've never seen? I don't have to see to know that something is real. I don't have to see to know that something exists. I don't have to see to experience. I don't have to understand it all to know that it is for my good. To the unbelieving world who might look in on these Christians that Peter's writing to and see that they're being persecuted, see the other Christians being persecuted throughout the Roman Empire, and they look at them and they say, you fools, you fools, you follow a Messiah who was quote-unquote supposedly prophesied, but yet he came and was born into nothing in the town of Bethlehem, hung upon a Roman cross, died, and you claim that he resurrected, but yet we've been told this, and that's your Savior? Mocked, ridiculed, scorned. Has it ended? Has it ended? It has not ended. It has not ended. No matter the overwhelming testimony, no matter the overwhelming evidence that Christ is who he is, unbelievers will still deny. They are blinded. They know not what they do, correct? Romans 1, we see this. Savannah texted something to me the other day, uh, and I won't get into details, but she had texted something to me the other day where basically someone was agreeing with something that I would said before, even though they disagreed with what I would said at the time whenever I would said it. And my response to her was literally, if someone wants me to be wrong, it doesn't matter that I'm right. Now, I'm wrong often, but there are times when you're right, and it doesn't matter how right you are, if someone wants you to be wrong, then in their mind, you're still wrong. Following Christ is a similar situation. We love our family members who yet not know Him. We love them. But how often do they speak poorly of us behind our backs? 
And we're not wrong for loving Christ. The things that we say about Christ are not wrong. And all we can do in our position, we can't logic them to salvation. But we do have the power of prayer. We certainly have the power of prayer. So having not seen Him, we love Him. We rejoice. They rejoice. And it's inexpressible. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you know what that means. It is a peace that surpasses all understanding. When the fiery trial occurs, as James says that it does, you can persevere because you know that it's for your good. The world looks on and doesn't understand it. They don't understand it. One of my favorite movies is the movie 1917. I may have referenced this in the sermon before. I'm sorry. That is a great movie. One of my favorite parts of the movie is where they walk through a cherry orchard. They walk through a cherry orchard from an area that had already been occupied by the German soldiers. And when they get there, there's two British soldiers. One of them sees the orchard and sees that all the trees have been cut down. And his first, his first thought is, the Germans can't even leave that. They can't even leave the orchard. They've destroyed it. It's over. They've ended all of this that would have been fruitful and useful. He sees it as dead and gone. The other soldier, on the other hand, who grew up on an orchard, was really, really quick to joyfully correct him and say, this isn't, this isn't all bad. This orchard isn't dead. No, 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 you're looking at this all wrong. All of the seeds from the fruit that's on the ground is now dispersed wider than it was before. These seeds will end up growing. These seeds will come back and the orchard will be stronger than it ever was. So what the Germans thought that they destroyed, generations are going to benefit from what they have done. Now what's the difference here? Are the trees still cut? Absolutely the trees are still cut. Did the Germans still mean it for ill? They did still mean it for ill. So what's the difference why is the perspective different? One is not knowledgeable about how the cherries in the orchard works. The other one has an understanding of what is actually taking place. The other one has an understanding of what is actually taking place. Ladies and gentlemen, that's following Jesus Christ. That is following Jesus Christ. When we're looking at the backside of the tapestry, Hattie's been doing a lot of needlepoint lately. And you look at the back side of it, it's pretty, but it's not nearly as pretty as the front side, is it? The Christian, by reading the Word of God, by knowing what God has to say for our lives, by understanding that we're going to face these things, and having that inexpressible joy, we get to see the front side, although not as clearly as we will later. Look forward to it. Look forward to understanding all of it later. But it's an inexpressible joy that we have now. This joy surpasses all understanding and is credited to us only through divine revelation of the Holy Spirit, not something that we've earned. No one has ever reasoned their way to salvation. Even the greatest of thankers. In verse 9, receiving the ends of your faith, the salvation of your soul, this is our abundant hope. There's a difference in Christian hope and worldly hope. To say that I hope that we have fried chicken today I don't know if we're having fried chicken. Are we having fried chicken today, Savannah? No, we're probably not. Maybe I can change that. Maybe that'll happen. But that would be a hope that I can't really build my life on. I don't really know that that's happening. I just kind of hope that it happens. 
When we say that we have an inexpressible hope and that we're receiving the salvation at the end of our souls, understand that salvation occurs from the point of being justified. The Christian is already justified. We're already saved. We're growing in sanctification to eventually reach glorification. Your salvation does not end upon death. Your salvation continues on following death. There's nothing I can amass here that I can take with me later but my salvation through Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. Teaching my sons and my daughters skills is fantastic. Teaching them to be able to, to divide God's Word and understand it is absolutely fantastic. But all of that should be done to point to the only one who can save them, the only thing that they can actually take with them, which is the salvation of their soul. That's it. That's the only thing. What, perfect, what more perfect gift could you have? In verse 10, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Come to you who is living through the persecution at this time in the Roman Empire. Coming to you who is sitting in this church right now. Coming to all believers across the globe who have bent the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. The salvation of the prophets, they searched carefully and they prophesied this grace and it came to you. They searched diligently. What was it that they were searching for? These men that prophesied were indwelled by the Holy Spirit, obviously, but that does not mean they fully understood everything that it was that they were saying at the time. They knew that the Messiah was coming. They even knew where the Messiah was coming, but they didn't know when the Messiah was coming. They didn't know. They didn't know all that you and I know on this side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We live in a time where there's a lot of, and I don't go down this rabbit hole of things, but there's a lot of social media prophets, I guess is what you would say. There's always been false prophets, but we have a lot of social media prophets. Interesting fact about modern day prophet, they are oh in a million in being correct. And the things that they're correct on are things that you and I would have been correct on, and that's not prophetic. There's a great difference, Christian, in being ready for the return of Christ and spending our life chasing those who claim to know when He will return. I'll say that again. There's a big difference in being ready for the return and spending our life chasing when that will take place. Live settled and know that it will happen. This is the eternal hope. It's not a wishful hope. It's a knowing hope. It's a known thing to take place that will take place. What the prophets have prophesied came to fruition. All that Christ said that He would do, He has done. When He says that He will return, I know without a doubt that He will return. He's not late. He's on time. And I don't have to know exactly when His return will take place to be excited for the return. I thought about this through the week. I can be excited for something and not know when it takes place. You can be excited for something and not know when it takes place. Boone has been really excited for something. Can you guess what it is? Christmas. Boone has been excited for Christmas, and rightfully so. So he asked me, Dad, when's Christmas? When's Christmas? When's Christmas? He's so excited. And I tell him, it's a week away. He's like, yes! He doesn't know how long a week is. He has no idea. 
I could have told him it's it's a year away, bud. Yes. It's tomorrow. Yes. The concept of understanding fully when it's going to take place is not the source of the joy. The source of the joy is that the event is going to take place. The fact that Christ is going to return, what more do we want? I don't know when. I just know that it will, that he will, that it's going to happen. I love, I love that about having kids, is you get to see that kind of joy. But Peter illustrates to the readers, uh, many of these readers obviously are, are well versed in understanding Old Testament prophecy, that Christ and his teachings are not some new doctrine, but a fulfillment of the Old Testament. It's not something new that they're adding to. So whenever it says the salvation, or sorry, of the salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. This is not an addition to, this is not a totally new doctrine. Christ is the fulfillment of what you already have read. He's the fulfillment of what has already been spoken. He's not an addition to, he's not a new prophet, he's not a new teacher. He is the Messiah. He is the one you've waited on. So when you face these things, and you know that you're being refined by these various trials, know that the Messiah has come, and you can place your hope in the Messiah that has come. And not only has He came, but He resurrected from the dead. The things that the, that the prophets have wrote and spoke of were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as I said earlier. But that doesn't mean they fully understand everything that's taking place. So whenever they're diligently searching, they're trying to find indications and details about the culmination of Jesus Christ and his known arrival. Think about Daniel. Daniel was brilliant. He was led by the Holy Spirit. But even Daniel gained his knowledge by studying. He gained his knowledge by studying by reading, by learning in these natural means, because although he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write, he was still mere man. I'll give you an example of the perfect prophecy of Jesus Christ. We could go, we, we already said there's roughly 300, conservatively speaking, prophecies that Christ fulfilled. But let's go to uh, Matthew chapter 2. Verse 5 in your copy of God's Word. Matthew chapter 2, verse 5. I love that this is where we are the week before Christmas, by the way. Matthew chapter 2, verse 5. So they said to him in Bethlehem, oh, they're speaking to Herod about where the uh, Christ would be born. So they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, <clears throat> for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Let's go to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Where we see another example of the perfect prophecy of Jesus Christ. Of the coming Messiah. But you, Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one 
to be the ruler of Israel, whose goings forth are from the old, from everlasting. It is not an accident that Christ was born in Bethlehem. It is not an accident that he was born in the city of David. It's not an accident that he was born in a town that basically its name translates to the city of bread, or the home of bread, laid in a manger, also known as a feeding trough, and that he would come and be the bread of life for man. None of that was accident. Another thing worth noting is that nothing about Christ was a backup plan. I feel that oftentimes Christians who may not study the Word of God and may not have sound preaching from the pulpit or maybe not plugged into a local church may think that Christ was somehow a backup plan as a means of salvation rather than the original plan of God. But yet we know that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, that He was there from the beginning. He was not created. He was not plan B. He was plan A from the moment before all of creation was even made. He was there. He was the path. He was the plan. The prophets are merely being a mouthpiece of what God had already ordained from the beginning. It's not a new addition. Him coming, as Peter's saying, is this is not something new. It's been spoken to you. Look at it. That's why I say this is a testimony of salvation. We've already talked about the definition of testimony. We have testimonies. We have evidence. We have everything that you need. And you can present all of the testimony. You can present all of the evidence. But without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't matter. Does this mean that we don't speak of these things? Obviously, we speak of these things. Obviously, we put our children and our family members in the streams of grace, as I've heard Vance say before. What a beautiful illustration. I can't save them. My evidence cannot save them. My testimony cannot save them. But God uses the evidence and God uses my testimony to point them in the stream of grace to realize that something is different about this person and that is different is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's different. Oh, so this is real. I'm going to use my Jim Elliott quote that I had added to the bulletin. How wonderful to know that Christianity is more than a padded pew or a dim cathedral, but that it is a real living daily experience which goes on from grace to grace. Our lives are testimonies. The testimonies of the prophets, the testimonies of the apostles, the testimonies of those who preach the gospel and the testimony of the angels should be in parallel with the testimony of the follower of Jesus Christ that points to that he is the end all, he is the be all, and he has never been a plan B. He's not a back door way. He's the only way. So as we gather with our family members for Christmas this year, let it be clear if we have the opportunity to pray, or maybe we just volunteer to pray. When we pray, make it plenty clear that He is the only means of salvation and that we live in a glorious time to be able to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. To know that He has already come and to know that He is coming again. Your last blank there is a gospel of generations. A gospel of generations. So picking up in verse 11, searching what 
talking about the prophets, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when He testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things which angels desire to look into. Searching what or in what manner of time. The prophets knew the significance of what they were saying. They understood the significance of the beautiful revelation given to them. And they would have undoubtedly been interested in when this would have taken place and in what manner or way that it would have existed. You and I are fortunate to live in a time where we don't have to question that. We know that. We have a perfect infallible word of God that tells us what took place. They didn't have that. They were indwelled with the Holy Spirit. They spoke what they spoke. It was infallible because it was not merely their opinion on things. But it was the Word of God, and it is the Word of God. But imagine that you have this revelation, you've been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Would you not be fascinated to know how and when does this happen? How and when does this happen? To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us. Peter's saying this to these dispersed people who are facing persecution in modern-day Turkey, that it was shown and revealed to us they were ministering to us the things which now have been reported to you. The fulfillment of the prophecy that they spoke is now being reported and, and, and spoken to and preached to you as the gospel to you by which the Holy Spirit has sent from heaven. The fact that we even celebrate Christmas is huge to be on this side of things. There's no lack of resources for the things that I've spoken about this morning. There's no lack of access of finding a copy of God's Word in the United States today and in many other countries around the world. There's certainly not a lack of churches. There may be a lack of churches that preach God's Word fully, but there's not a lack of churches. There's not a lack of opportunity to build Christian community and if there is, then it's up to us to build it. What there is, however, is a lack of many to bend the knee and submit to His Word. We can reason. We can preach. We should. And we should communicate the gospel, not only through our actions, but absolutely with our words. And then we let the Lord do what only the Lord can do. The angels, as it says in verse 12 here at the end, <clears throat> the angels who are without sin still worshipped the Lord. The angels who were not in need of redemption worshipped the Lord. The angels who did not need the plans of rescuing still worshipped the Lord. What did their rejoicing what did their worship look like when it says that there was, and let me get to it actually, in Luke chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. 
So awesome, so beautiful. Some of you guys will probably be reading this this week with your family if you haven't done so already. <clears throat> Speaking of the angels here at the birth of Jesus Christ. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will see a babe wrapped in swaddling cloth, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill to men. So what is a heavenly host? Well, a host is a term that's sometimes used as a military term or a legion. It could be a multitude of angels, countless, to actually describe here. To say that the heavenly hosts show up and sing and rejoice, this is a multitude, as it says. This is a huge deal. This is a triumphant entry. When we look at our manger scene, and we have the wise men there, and whenever he's a baby, we'll talk about that some other time. But when we look at our nativity scene, and you may see a single angel there, I understand the symbolism that's being brought into that, but this is a multitude of heavenly hosts that are proclaiming out loud, glory be to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill toward man, the Savior, that God-man has arrived. He is here, just as it was said that He would be. And He is without fault. He is without blemish. He's exactly what has been told to you for years and years on end. We live in the wake of an abundance of testimony of who Christ is. We live in the wake of an abundance of evidence as to who Christ is from the Old Testament prophets that were inspired by the Holy Spirit to those who preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, either from walking with Christ or those who had never seen him, as Peter says to uh, those that are facing the persecution here in this letter, even to the angels who Matthew Henry put it, pry into these matters regarding the mysteries of the gospel and the methods of man's salvation with deep attention and admiration. We have no lack of testimony. We have no lack of evidence. We have everything that we need, but our everything that we need is not merely the testimony and the evidence. Everything that we need is Christ and Christ alone. May we prepare our hearts this week as we celebrate the birth of Christ to know that his, that his arrival was not plan B. That His arrival is our only means of hope and that His return, although may not be foreknown by us, that His return is coming. And that it is something that we should be prepared for and it is something that we should be as excited about as even the celebration of His, birth, of his first coming. And I pray that we be thinking of that as we go through this week, as we anticipate gathering with our family members, that we may be bold in our speech, that we may be bold in our prayer, that we may be bold in our actions, that those who may be our unbelieving family members see the work of Jesus Christ in us, in our behavior, in the way that we give, in the way that we share, in the way that we carry ourselves, because we realize that we've been bought and paid for, and we no longer belong to ourselves, but we belong to the only one who is worth belonging to. Y'all would pray with me. God, we thank you so much for this letter. We thank you so much that we can 
read from the prophets, that we can read from the apostles, that we can read from those who are under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and know that we have a full and sufficient word, that we have nothing lacking. God, I pray that our lives be a testimony of the salvation that's taken place in us. God, I pray that you forgive us of all of our sins. I pray that you grow us in holiness, sanctification. God, I pray that we be a light to a lost and dying world. Lord, I pray that we proclaim you boldly everywhere that we go. Prepare our hearts this week as we celebrate the birth of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his perfect and holy name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to New Life Preaching Podcast. Subscribe so you don't miss a single sermon. We invite you to our Lord's Day gathering at New Life Baptist Church Hallsville where we meet and worship 10.30 a.m. each Lord's Day.